Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my two trusty co-hosts, Chris Dorides and Marissa DiNatale. Hi, guys. Hi, Mark. Hi, Mark. Have you noticed I've kind of gotten into a rhythm introducing this thing? I, I say this. I'm, 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 your sleep. I'm, pardon me? You can say it in your sleep, I think. I can say it in my sleep now. <laughs> uh, but I'm wondering if that's just getting boring for people. May, maybe I need to mix up the introduction somehow. I, I don't I know. Do need uh, some sound effects or something? Uh, Walk yeah, out I'm looking or... for suggestions. I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know, we've been at this for, I think, over two years now, or close to two years, I believe, coming up on the second birthday. So hard to believe that, isn't it, that we've been wow. doing this so long? Yeah. Hey, I was in Washington this week, you know, uh, talking to lawmakers around the debt limit. Uh, and I'll have to say what struck me was how wide people's views are with regard to how this is going to play out. Some people wait, are wait, really... wait. So, so last podcast, I think you were feeling optimistic. You had just been down there to talk to them. Yeah. Like, something's going to happen now yeah, that's I'm... changing. So... No, I, I think I'm still optimistic. I mean, we're getting actually happy talk coming out of Washington most more recently, right? So it feels like they're coming to a deal. But despite that, you know, what struck me was just the wide variability among folks involved as to how they would handicap this playing out. I just found that striking, uh, which goes to say, I think no one really knows, you know, how this thing's going to play out. Uh, but uh, I found that, uh, you know, very interesting. Um, uh, we got a guest. We have uh, a guest, uh, Richard uh, Branch uh, from uh, Dodge. Good to have you, Richard. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's real fun yeah. to be here. And where are you hailing from? Where are you speaking to us from? Yeah, I live in uh, Goffstown, New Hampshire, uh, southern New Hampshire. Oh, is that uh, how'd you end up there? How'd you get up up to New? Well, is, that home? Uh, is that where you grew our, up? Our or? forecasting and analytics offices are, are nominally based in in Bedford, Massachusetts, so on the northern suburbs of, of Boston. And uh, home prices, real estate valuations, much nicer over here in New Hampshire. No sales tax, uh, uh, no tax, so. It's an attractive place to live. Yeah. And you're the chief economist of Dodge. I am chief economist of Dodge Construction Network. And and uh, how long have you been chief economist? Since uh, 2019. So just before the pandemic. So I'm not sure if there's causation or correlation there, but uh, I took over and then the world turned crazy. Yeah, you were saying before we went on the previous chief economist. Who was that? I can't remember who that Bob was. Murray. Oh yeah, sure, Bob Murray. Yeah. He he was yeah. uh, out there all the time. Absolutely. He had a he had a saying about forecasting. What was that again? Uh, he, his saying about being an economist in general is is it's not the knowledge necessarily that's important. It's the appearance. Uh -huh. of knowledge. It's the appearance of knowledge. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Definitely. A, a, uh, I'd say a lot of truth to that. Absolutely. <laughs> it, it, uh, but in all endeavors, I would say, not just for economists. Parenting, everything. Yeah. Everything. It's just, you know, got to come across as being credible for sure. And uh, tell us about, you know, obviously you are going to provide a very, we're going to talk about the construction markets broadly and you provide a, the, a really wonderful window into what's going on into that part of the economy, which is a big part of the economy. Uh, do you want to just tell us a little bit about your work and, you know, what's, what Dodge does? Sure. Yeah. So I, I've been with Dodge, uh, I think I'm going on year number 14 now. So uh, 
was here for a little while in the early thousands, left to try some different things, came back uh, just before Bob retired. Uh, in, in general, what we do at Dodge Construction, it, it's such a fun story to tell. Uh, we've been around since the 20s, as in the 1920s. And what we do at the core of it is we're tracking construction information at the project level. So we're tracking, uh, we have this great mix of, of longitudinal data, right? We're tracking individual construction projects from when they're essentially first showing up on an architect's desk, if not before, all the way through the planning life cycle, we're capturing geo data, what the project is, how big it is, square footage, dollar value, unit, story height. Uh, we're tracking who's working on it, what kind of products are being specified. Um, and then once it breaks ground, which is what we call a start, then we create a time series out of it. And my team, what we do is we forecast that time series across 22 different major verticals within the construction sector, across residential, non-residential buildings, and then into infrastructure. And the, the vast majority of our clients are in that construction space. So they are building products manufacturers, they are service providers into the construction sector, a growing number of, uh, a growing share of the clients though, into the consulting and, and the fire and the banking world for, uh, as well. So it's it's a, a wide ranging data set. Uh, we track, I think every year about four hundred thousand new projects come into our planning database. And by I mean new projects, new is in the first time it's being spec'd out, as opposed to new versus say a renovation. About two hundred thousand of those actually break ground every year. So in terms of the sandbox that we get to play in every day as as a as a nerd, right? Uh, it, it's just an amazing tool. It's an amazing toy to play with. So you count yourself as a nerd? Oh, absolutely. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. You you and Marissa are nerds, I'd say. I don't know about Chris. Proudly. Chris, Chris is too <laughs> urbane. You know, he plays wow. bocce. Yeah. You know. Oh, wow. He has designer glasses. You are uh, <laughs> boosting my ego today. He's yeah. a niche kind of nerd. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Yeah. He's a Nietzsche nerd. A nouveau <laughs> nerd. Yeah, nouveau nerd, nouveau nerd. Well, it's good to have Richard, you. And oh, sorry, go ahead. Go I was ahead. going to ask: Is this just uh, commercial properties that you're tracking, or is it residential, single-family residential? Yeah, that, well, that's a, that's a, that's a great uh, uh, point of clarification, Chris. Because we're tracking construction pro projects regardless of of what kind of project it is, right? So, single-family, multifamily, to be sure. But we're tracking office projects, whether they're on the speculative or the investor side, or whether they're a corporate headquarters, uh, campus like that, data centers, schools, healthcare, lab buildings, public buildings, airports. We're tracking it top to bottom, left to right. So uh, just big picture. Uh, yep. And I'm sure you get this question all the time. And, and, I, and I, I get it, and I'm not sure how to answer it. How important is construction to the broader economy? I mean, when you think about, about broadly speaking, however you want to define it, you, yeah, you know, what share of the economy is it typically? Yeah, it, it's a smaller share. I think it's probably around 15, 10, 15% of, of total GDP. I, I think though, I think about it in, in, a, in a more sociological standpoint. If you think about everything that we do every day, what you're sitting in now, the thing you drove on to get your Wawa coffee, whatever you do, 
Oh, he's a he's a listener. You're a listener. I, I am. I am. I'm oh, very man. good. Okay, yeah. a client and a listener and there a nice go. guy and a nerd, all all wrapped up <laughs> into one. Okay. Yeah, but everything we touch is construction. Everything. Yeah, it's true. Good point. And and so it's 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 well, it may be a small share of the economy from a dollar standpoint or from an employment standpoint. It touches everything that we do. Yeah. So uh, it, I I want to get. Uh, down and dirty and talk about uh, these verticals you talked about, not all 20 plus verticals, <laughs> but you know some of these verticals, because there's a lot of interesting things going on that provide uh, perspective on what's going on in the economy and what where the economy is headed. But uh, what is the state of the union uh, for the construction trades right now? I mean, it, it, or would you say, because again, maybe it, it's hard to say because there's depends on which part of the elephant you're touching, but it, looking at the entire elephant construction, wh- where would you say it is in kind of the cycle? Good question. I, as we looked at the calendar flipping over from 22 to 23, there was an incredible amount of momentum building up in the sector, uh, mostly in the multifamily space, manufacturing, some of the more public building side of the markets, and of course, mm-hmm. infrastructure. Um, that momentum hasn't gone away other than maybe multifamily. Multifamily is certainly eroded, but that momentum is still there. That strength is still there, but it's being countered by weakness in a lot of the income property types, whether that's warehousing, retail, or hotel have certainly weakened considerably as the year has gone on. And then, you you know, we start thinking about that extra layer of banking and, and the, the stresses in the financial system. And we're starting to see, particularly on the income property types, the the, the cracks in the foundation of the construction project. Hmm. Uh, so, so in in aggregate, you would say it's kind of holding its own, but there's a lot of cross currents here. You know, it, it, it's treading water. It and and the way I look at it, our our forecast for the year. I don't want to get too far ahead of the the game mm-hmm. here, but if we look at all those verticals added together, yeah. Total construction, we're looking at up 2% this year in nominal dollars, constant dollars. It's down five, down six. But as because I look of the inflation, across, is, there's a lot of inflation here. Exactly. Yeah. But as right. I look across those verticals, there's not a lot that are within that plus two to minus four range. They're huh. either very strong <laughs> or they're very weak. It, it's, I, I was saying this to a client the other day that as I look at the sector today, tomorrow, and even into say 24 and 25, I think this is potentially the most bifurcated market we've seen Hmm. based around geography, demographics, and the types of projects that are going up. Hmm. Interesting. And that's kind of reflected in kind of the key, one of the key links from from construction back into the broader economy, and that's construction employment. You know, one of the Kind of a conundrums. I think even uh, Powell may have mentioned this, uh, or another policymaker, that con- employment in the construction trades has not declined really. I mean, we've had a month or two where we've seen declines, but you know, abstracting from the monthly vagaries of the data, we're not seeing the kind of declines in construction employment you would t- typically see after a period of a significant run up in interest rates and a Fed that's working really hard to slow the economy down presumably through the most rate-sensitive sectors of the economy, one of which is 
construction. So he's yeah. it's like, what's going on? Do you, do you have a, is, did I characterize that right? And you're, and, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and, and what I found even find even more amazing than that is the fact that when you look at the, the largest single vertical in the construction space, it's single fam. And single fam is, is in cyclical decline. It is down and out. And so the jobs are still holding up both in the employment numbers. You look at the jolts numbers in spite of the fact that single family is where it is, is, is a testament, I think, to the strength in other sectors. And, and whether that's manufacturing or infrastructure, there is a lot of demand and an extreme shortage of construction workers. Yeah. He, you see, he is a little nerdy. See how I did that single fam. Like uh, I'm a cool, I'm the cool kid. (laughs) I don't say single family. I see single fam. It saves time. Yeah. Yeah. It saves time. Yeah. Well, I guess if you said it, if you say it, 80 times a day. That's right. <laughs> you come up with a shorthand. I get it. Do you say multifam too? I say multifam. Yeah. Multifam. Okay. I'm, I'm going to learn this lingo. Yeah. Uh, so, so uh, this goes to the fact the construction employment in the construction trades is basically flat. Yeah. And uh, this is testimonial to what you were saying, the strength in some parts of the construction trades is still adding they're still adding to payrolls and offsetting the job loss that's occurring in single fam 100 100 okay okay very well good. i guess a caveat there i mean single fam certainly down in terms of permits and starts but there's still quite a pipeline of homes that are under construction right so could there be just some lag effect here we need to finish off some of the projects and then you might see a wave mm-hmm. of Layoffs, sir. There is that, and and what typically happens as well in, the, in this part of the business cycle is renovation picks up as well, right? So people mm-hmm. are doing interior renos, and that's adding to that demand for contractors and electricians and whatnot. Yeah, very good. You know, one of the um, uh, again, this is classifies as nerdy, uh, but one of the kind of uh, questions that have been circulating in the, in, in our nerdy world is around uh, the productivity uh, growth of the construction trades. And I think it was Austin Goolsby, yeah. who was a Chicago professor who just became president of the Chicago Fed, wrote a piece, a paper with a, a colleague. I can't remember who that was. I, I should remember, but I don't. You may, you may remember. Uh, talking about the fact that productivity in the trades has been abysmal really uh very very weak uh is first of all i know there's a lot of measurement issues uh is there are they understating the productivity gains because of the measurement issues um that uh you know plague uh, uh measuring productivity in any sector but particularly in the construction trades yeah you know i i i read that paper I read the New York Times article that I think came out the week. Oh, after. I didn't see that. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. and my my honest reaction to that is I got really defensive, you know, trying to be a defender of <laughs> right. Um, and then I think you had some folks on within the weeks after that talking about, I think somebody mentioned nail guns and things like that. And I got even more kind of defensive. But then I went and said, Well, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's go back and actually look at the data. Right. And right. the math. You mentioned uh, a measurement error. The math isn't necessarily wrong, right? Okay. Output work for worker has been declining. But when you look, I think there's a, a couple of different ways to look at this. 
first of all, and, and I think this was mentioned in, in a, a construction email list. I think you guys are you're on that. And yeah. it, it we talked about coding, right? Different building codes have changed significantly, whether they're seismic codes on the West Coast, storm flood related codes down in the southeastern part of the United States that has made the construction sector made a, a construction job more difficult. Uh, zoning issues. But I think overall, two more things that 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 construction has just become more complicated. Hmm. The buildings have become more complicated. So if we go back to, to 2000, the average square footage for a non-residential building was around 50,000. 50,000 square feet for a new non-residential building. The average right now is well over 100,000 square feet. Hmm. And you it's look at office, warehouse, it's combining office, everything. Convention centers, manufacturing, okay. Oh, okay. everything. Yep. Yep. If you think about the kinds of projects that were at the top of the list back in 2020 that broke ground, or sorry, 2000 that broke ground, they were big hotel and convention centers, airport terminals. And then you compare that to the kinds of projects that are breaking ground now. The largest project that broke ground last year was a 9 million square foot manufacturing facility. I, I have spatial issues in terms of trying to picture a 9 million square foot facility. So I, right. I always put it back to how many Walmarts would fit inside it. So an average Walmart's around 180,000 square feet. And if I did my math right, that's about 50 Walmart super centers Whoa. in that manufacturing facility. How many so, Wawa's is that? <laughs> <laughs> Mark? Yeah, I'll work on that. Yeah, that's a good one. I got, I'll chat GPT that. Okay. Yeah. But we're, we're doing those more complicated projects, those chip factories, those EV battery plants, with essentially the same level of workforce. Mm. That, that hasn't really changed from 2000, 2006 to now. You know, there's yeah. been cyclical issues, of course. So that's perhaps a counterpoint that, that we're doing these much more complicated projects with the same amount of workers. Well, it sounds like a measurement issue. Uh, you know, it's, it's like... Right. I mean, because you're getting, presumably with all that complexity, you're getting something out of that, right? Yeah. I mean, we're, there's benefits to whatever that complexity is. I mean. Yeah. And, and uh, I think that the, the easy math, right? No, Chris, that you kind of shook your head. I saw that. No, oh, I, I, no, I, I agree with that. Okay. I definitely think there's measurement, but my other question would be, I'm, I don't know the answer to this. I don't know, Marissa or Richard, if you know, well, what about worker safety? Right? If we're getting less productive, but the workers are that's their health point, is yeah. reserved or, yeah. you know, is that a, I don't think that's factored in that study. No. Right. Right. So your, your sense is then if that, that what you just described sounds like a, a me, it's like, like measuring productivity in the vehicle industry, you've got to account for the quality of the vehicle that's being right. produced. And certainly the vehicles that are being produced today are more complex and provide much greater service to us than the ones that were produced five years ago, 10 years ago, 50. And if you don't account for that, then your measurement of productivity will be biased lower. And it feels like that's part. So your defensiveness was appropriate, right? To some I think degree. so. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very good. Okay. I, I think there's a separate issue too, right? That that just from a data perspective, when you do the productivity math, you're talking about construction starts or construction put in place, as in the work's actually the work is actually underway at this moment. But I think we need to remember a construction project doesn't start when the shovel hits the ground. 
right? These projects are in the planning cycle for as much as a year to two years before they even break ground. And that's where we've seen some productivity improvements in terms of design, uh, 3D design, you know, less on paper, more virtual uh, product procurement supply chain. That's where we've started to see more investment. That's where we've started to see more productivity improvements to get that job to groundbreaking sooner. Yeah, I can speak to that personally. My son has a, a BIM company, building information management yep. company, and they digitize everything. Exactly right. And then they uh, make sure that everything works digitally before the physical actual construction of the building. And it significantly reduces the error rate, the mistake, because there's a lot of mistakes being made sure. that cost a lot of money, a lot of time. And the digitization really improves that process. So I, I, I you know, when I see that, I go, well, maybe that's still small potatoes in, in the grand scheme of things, because it feels like that hasn't really been adopted broadly through the construction trades yet. But that feels like that's coming, that coming pretty quickly. Absolutely, it is coming very quickly. And, and I would add to that, what I see anecdotally is there's a lot of interest from outside of the construction industry to get into that whether it's BIM or digitization of, of, of information. So you're seeing bigger technology firms coming into the sector. You're seeing a lot of venture capital come into the sector to exactly address that issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about those verticals uh, and uh, I'm not sure how I want to do this, but maybe we start with the biggest single family, single fam, I should say, single fam. And I guess the question from a macroeconomic perspective is, are we at bottom, right? Because single family starts, and you know the data better and better than I'm speaking from memory, and hopefully I'm not taking anyone's statistic. But before interest rates took off a little over a year ago, you know, mortgage rates were at record lows. We had seen single family construction kind of pick up, get back to something that would be more consistent with historical norms. I think we were running, what, 1.2 million, 1.25 million per annum, something like that. Now we're down to 850K, you know, uh, per annum, I believe, if I've got the numbers right. Uh, it, and it, it, that's impressive, right, Marissa, that I just was able to rattle. I, I could be, this goes Very, back to your your quote, your act with certainty. Yeah. What was it? Be, be, it's all, all a matter of appearance. I have no Take idea if those maker. numbers are right. But <laughs> I sound like I know what I'm talking about. I think I, I think I got it roughly right. Chris will correct me. But 846,000, I believe. Okay. 846,000. Yeah, there you go. Uh, it, are we at bottom do you think in terms of uh starts in in the in in the single fam market i i think we are when i look at our starts data and again we were we capture our own single family data separate from, from census um construction starts at least seasonal adjusted annualized rates have been up for the past four months they're still down double digits from where they were in early 2022 but I think that inflection point is here. And you start looking at other data, the, the home builder confidence is starting to rise. I think we're at the bottom. Do we go anywhere from here? Probably not. At least I don't think that happens much this year. I, I, I've been likening it to, you know, you throw a flat stone across a pond and it just kind of skims there for a while. That's how I view the single family market now and over the next several quarters. Okay. Okay. And um uh the 850k uh where do you think oh and i should say uh, i meant to say you must be assuming a couple things a lot of things but just to call out a couple things 
One is mortgage rates aren't going any higher. You, I assume you're assuming that. Correct. Okay. So we're at a six and a half percent 30 year fix, roughly speaking. That's kind of sort of where we'll be. Yeah. Okay. And the second thing, no recession. Absolutely no recession. Absolutely no recession. Oh. Huh. Ooh. He said that was that's now he well, said that's that the assumption. Was, he said that's the assumption. That's the assumption, right? right. Oh, okay. We built some softness into into our our yeah. our, our macro side, but yeah. And yeah. this goes back to that. We just kind of skid along the bottom here before we start to see real organic growth later in the year. Got it. And the other kind of question that Chris and I are always debating is long run. I mean, yeah. you can define it ever whatever that means, long run, but it's kind of through the business cycle. What is the uh, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes here, a, a kind of the appropriate level of starts, you know, consistent with, because here now it's about demographics, you know, how many households are forming, are they going to more likely rent, or are they going to be single family homeowners, you know, got to make those kinds of uh, forecasts, but is 850K below that kind of long run through the cycle level of construction, or is it is it meaningfully higher than that? Do you have, do you have a view on that? Yeah. You might be able to settle a, a dollar bet that Chris and I have. Oh here. boy. Um, I lost that bet a long time ago. I know I did, <laughs> but I, I I can always win again, depending on what Richard has to say. Oh, yeah, okay, I, all right. I, I am not overtly positive on the long-term prospects for single-family construction. Not not because of the demand side, but just the inability to build. Whether that's because of construction workers, whether that's because of NIMBYism and the the inability to build large track affordable single family housing. So in in my view, and I'm, I'm, I think, Mark, we mentioned this before the podcast, you know, I'm going to answer a question, not necessarily the question, but, <laughs> you know, we, 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 you didn't have to tell me that the other trick to doing <laughs> that is not telling anyone. <laughs> right. uh, the fact that you told me that now, now everyone knows <laughs> you're, you're making stuff up, but go ahead. Go ahead. So, so we kind of view single family underperforming here over the next several years. Okay. Okay. Very good. Chris, can I ask you that question? I've kind of lost track of where your mind is. What do you think the long, through the cycle, business cycle, uh, kind of, let's call it, uh, here's now a little nerdy jargony, equilibrium level of single family construction, single family starts to be more precise. Yeah. So over the next five, 10 years, I think it's a bit higher. I think there's still <laughs> pent up demand out there. The supply definitely is an issue though. So I don't see this taking off anytime soon, but if you told me it's you know, closer nine hundred thousand. Oh, just uh, marginally higher, not marginally not higher, higher. nine nine fifty, something like that. A little less than a million. Uh, I'd probably accept that. But after that, I think the demand picture looks very different. Demographics uh, really start to kick in, and unless there's a wave of immigration, right, right, that that trend is going to be downward um, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, oh, sorry, Richard, you wanted to say yeah, something? I was just going to say, so we track single family. We define it a little differently. For us, single family is just detached. So we put townhousing and two uh -huh. family into our multifamily sector. So as I look at our longer term single family units, again, take out that, that two fam attached um, kind of building, we're looking at mid eights through the, the bulk of our forecast here. So okay. underperforming. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. And that and that goes to, does that go to uh, lower home ownership and just increased demand for rental? Mm -hmm. Going back to your point about space, uh, finding land to build on that kind of thing, or in affordability. 
I, I think it I think it boils down to that affordability. Will we actually yeah. see measurable improvements in affordability short term, medium term, long term? Certainly not short and medium in, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. Why the supplies, the right mix of supply isn't there. Okay. So you're you're kind of saying the uh, single family starts have bottomed, but they're not going anywhere fast. And in the long run, I don't see them rising to any meaningful degree. In long, lo- longer, longer run, given demographics, to Chris's point, they'll start declining, right? Because household formation, unless we change immigration policy pretty significantly. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's turn to multifamily then. Uh, well, and, yeah. Pardon me? Multifam. Oh, multifam. I was getting there. Multifam. I was, <laughs> yeah, I was getting there. Um, you know, just for the listeners so they can see multi. Uh, see how I do this? Multifamily. Yeah, and then I say multifam <laughs> so that, you know, everyone's on board. Um, on the multifam side, I, I think we've been around here 500 to 600,000 units per annum. That was the case before the run up in interest rates. And that's the case now. Still. Yeah roughly the same. And that goes to obviously the run-up in rates has crushed single-family housing affordability. People can't afford a single-family home, therefore more likely to stay in a multifamily uh, unit. Uh, and there's what's a real shortage. For, what's bad for single-family is good for multi. Yeah. And and we have a, we've, coming into the all of this mess, the pandemic, we already had a shortage, an affordable housing shortage. The vacancy rates were, if not at record lows, pretty close to record lows. So, do you, do you think? What do you? What do you? Where do you? What's your prospects for multifamily starts? Do you think they start to come in here, or, or you know, where are they headed? Yeah, just just to put it in our perspective, in in terms of our data. 2022, 823,000 units of multifam. So that's apartments plus those two fam attached oh, yeah. houses. Okay. Right. Uh, best year for multifamily construction starts going back to the mid 80s. Hmm. So it was that hot of a market. Uh, we see a decline here coming up, but still you'd have to go back to the 80s from a level perspective to, to get where we are. I'm a little concerned on the downside though on multifamily because I think the mix has gotten scattered. I think what's going on right now is a lot of high-end construction in dense urban areas and not necessarily what the market needs. So I think there could be a comeuppance, maybe more than we're expecting in, in, in 2023, particularly in larger metropolitan areas like New York, Miami, uh, Dallas, where we've seen a lot of this high-end, high-rise construction go up. Yeah, and I think this might go to the banking situation too, right? Because I think... Uh... A lot of multifamily developers rely on banks, small, mid-sized banks in particular, to kind of finance the right. construction and ultimately provide mortgage loans uh, to uh, those properties. And uh, presumably, you know, we can see that uh, banks have tightened down their underwriting aggressively. They were doing that even before the banking crisis and yeah. post-crisis. They obviously continue to do that. Do you sense that that's really starting to bite into? Uh, multifamily uh, starts? We're, we're seeing starts decline, starts have declined in the past three months. But I think more importantly, from a pipeline perspective, if, if we look at those projects coming into the earliest stages of planning, so we call them in, in nerd world version one reports, it means it, it's basically it's brand new and it's got an architect and a GC attached to it. Projects in that space are down about 15% from where they were at the end 
of, of, of 2022. So definitely not just the start side, but the planning side of, of the equation is falling as well. Okay, so uh, dead ahead, uh, not 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 immediately because there's a record number of multi multifam units in the pipeline right. going to completion that right. got bottled up during the pandemic because of supply chain and labor market yeah. issues that are now going to completion. But on the other side of that, which is probably as we end the year moving into next, starts will start to come in, activity will start to come in. Yeah, we're we're looking at around a twelve to thirteen percent decline. In, okay. In, so. Okay. okay. I, I, again, I, I feel that there's probably more downside potential in that market. Yeah. So, so, so overall residential construction activities uh, is going to weaken. It's, it's not going to get any better here anytime soon. It's going to likely continue to weaken over the course of the next, I don't know, 12, 18, 24 months, something like that. Yeah, I, I do think just, you know, tonality wise, I'm going to go with the glasses half full because I do think yeah. the inflection point. In, in single is here, as opposed to say an inflection point in multifamily, we okay. won't see that turn to the positive in multifamily probably to early 2024. Okay. So there's some Because the single family market too, I worry a little bit about that in the context of the banking uh, crisis, because uh, a lot of home builders, not the big publicly traded builders that have access to capital markets to fund their uh, their building, kind of the smaller mom and pop builders, which by the way, are is about half, I believe it's about still about half of all construction, typically yes. single family construction. They're likely under a lot of pressure because of the tightening down and underwriting uh, by the small and mid-sized banks. And I, I just wonder if we're not going to see a further weakening in single fam because of the, the lack of credit. I, I, I think you're spot on there, but I would even also add to that the labor issue. The labor right. issue. Those yeah. small and medium-sized builders are having they're they're finding it more difficult to access labor, particularly as construction labor gets pushed towards the bigger projects, whether those are bigger multifam manufacturing, those types of projects. So they, they can't they can't lift their wages the same as a big builder would do. They can't offer the kind of money that say a, an Intel is going to offer to build their plant. So that they're they're I think doubly hit here in 2023. Okay, okay. So um, we we covered residential. Let's cover non-residential, and then we'll do the game, and sure. then we'll come back and do public construction. Yeah. And also, you've done some work around the debt limit and what potential scenarios might mean for the construction trades, and we can maybe end there. So on the non-res side, there's a lot of uh, obviously verticals there, as you say. Let me let me maybe we can have the, do the conversation this way. Which vertical are you uh, most nervous about? Uh, you know that in terms of uh, you know construction activity going forward here in, in the near term. Uh, traditional offices. Offices. Okay. No, no question about it. Yeah. Right. And in in the obvious, it's the obvious. Yeah. It, it's uh, it, the push towards hybrid remote work. Yeah. And the increase in vacancy that's resulting in big urban centers. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And how big a deal do you think that is from a macroeconomic perspective? I mean, is it is it a big deal or is it kind of on the margin? Office construction? Yeah. Uh, it's it's in, in terms of our data, it, it's one of the medium-sized sectors. It's certainly not okay. the largest by any stretch of the imagination. It's not the smallest. Right. It's, it's stuck in the middle. Yeah. Have you looked into the 
one kind of potential saving grace might be the conversion of office into residential. Again, going back to, you know, we do have an affordable housing shortage uh, and maybe these office towers can be converted in some of these big urban cores where the shortage is most severe uh, and alleviate, help alleviate that shortage. Have you looked into that kind of dynamic at all? We've been paying attention to the data as it comes in. It is hard to track um, whether this is a conversion project or a new project. Uh, we haven't seen any significant trend in the data that points to this as happening. Certainly a lot of anecdotal project here, project there, but no sort of groundswell in the data that says this is this is going to be the this next is a big, big deal. Yeah. yeah, Chris, have you seen anything in this area? No, I did, I did have a question though. Do yeah. you see any differentiation between the urban core and suburban offices? Is there because of the hybrid work? Are you seeing any pickup in suburban office demand for? Yeah, I'm I'm going to be very careful here because I don't want to uh, burn my stat. Oh, so, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, oh, we can hold uh, off. Oh, all That's our ears pick, just picked up when you said that. Yeah. So so if if. As we track the office sector, it really goes into three different buckets. There's that office construction project that is what we'll call the income property type, right? That's about two thirds of all office construction is that more spec side of the market, whether it's suburban or urban. Um, about 25% of the market, actually leave 25% to the end, around eight to 9% is dedicated corporate headquarters. Those kinds of projects are still moving forward, right? And I think those are the projects, whether they be in suburban um, locations, it, it's fueling, it's fueled by that push towards more hybrid work that you have a central locus or a node where you can bring workers to, whether that's once a month, once a quarter. So those kinds of projects seem to be moving forward. The last part of our office data, which is 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 a little different to think about is we put data centers huh. in our office sector. So it's data. If you look at our overall office market for 2023, it's only down 5% in terms of dollar value, but that's because data centers are boosting it up. There's a huge demand for data centers. So to go back to your, your suburban versus urban question, you're right. The urban market is, 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 is in trouble. But that suburban market, because of those more build-to-suit corporate headquarter campuses, is actually doing reasonably well. It's just a small part of the market. Okay. And not enough to offset the, the downdraft. Okay. Not enough. Not at all. Yeah. So so uh, offices at the uh, end, at the bottom of the uh, distribution <clears throat> of uh, construction yes. activity. Yeah. What else is down there with, with office? Uh, maybe not Warehouse. as bad, but- a warehouse. Okay. Warehouse, yeah. I, I would view that though as more of a structural issue rather than an economic issue. So hmm. a warehouse project for us is is whether it's a build the suit or or a spec space, right? And in terms of our prime in terms of our time series, which goes back to 67, starting in 2018 or 2019, we've set construction records for warehouse every single year. And it's fueled by one person, Amazon. Amazon. Oh, right. that would have been a great stat that I would have gotten. Yeah, uh, that's why. why I didn't. <laughs> so in, in terms of warehouse construction, Amazon's about 16% of the space. Wow. And we know that Amazon said, we're done. We're stepping out of this market. Yeah. And right. so they're seeing that structural shift down. 
there's still a lot of demand, particularly for high-end, whether it's robotic or heavily conditioned warehouse space. So even out through 2027, as this market shrinks, it's still going to be about where it was in 2018 or 2019 when it set records. It's just one big player stepped out of the market. So not economic per se, structural, I would say. Yeah. Although I would have thought there too, that kind of the shift from goods to services in terms of consumer preferences might be playing a role too, right? Because it's it's it, it's reduced global trade and uh, transportation demand and needs and uh, therefore the need for warehouse space. In yeah, fact, I, I, I think inventories of warehouses that I looked is still pretty inflated and they're trying to work down those inventories. So I, I would potentially offer a, a cross or a different way to think about that is, is you think about it from that last mile perspective that it's not just construction workers or sh- that are short. It's not just manufacturing workers, it's truck drivers. And so mm-hmm. there's probably an incentive for warehousing and logistic companies to build more units, more space that are closer together. So more spoken hub rather than a big five or six million square foot facility, because you just don't necessarily have the drivers to fill in all the local spaces. You need more small local distribution facilities. So that might be a counter to that, I would think. Yeah, very interesting. Like like, there be a boost from onshoring or nearshoring? Absolutely. Shoring of uh, manufacturing. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It's it's, it's just amazing, the cross currents in everything, I guess. But yeah, yeah, but there's so many cross currents. Um. Okay, so let's look at the other uh, side of the distribution. What's booming? You mentioned data centers. That seems pretty clear given yes. the cloud and yeah. maybe Bitcoin. I don't know. Uh, but uh, we, we do have Bitcoin mining facilities included yeah. as data centers, and we're seeing a few of those come up for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So what else is at the top of the list of sectors that are doing yeah. really well? Yeah, I, I would put three in here, manufacturing. Manufacturing. Absolutely. There's your onshoring. There's yep. your onshoring, yeah. Um, healthcare, okay. whether it's, it's hospitals, whether it's clinics, you know, the dock in the boxes or the urgent care centers, um, as well as laboratories, life science buildings. Yep. Philly, Philly's uh, booming, right? Yep, absolutely. So those, those, those counter some of those weaknesses that we're seeing in the office, retail, warehouse space. Right, right. In the uh, in manufacturing industrial, that's, that, that is people... Uh, manufacturers bringing back production in part because of the supply chain issues related to the pandemic in part because of perhaps relationships with China and bringing in those supply chains. And of course, policy, we've got policy that's helping here too. The CHIPS Act would be example, I guess. It's turned it into between CHIPS and the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, fueling EV and EV battery plants. It's somewhat turned the sector into a quasi public sector. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Interesting. Um, if we look at look at our construction starts for for 2022 manufacturing, 101 billion dollars. In terms of our data set back to 67 nominal dollars, that's a record. If you look at it in square feet or constant dollars adjusted for inflation, it's a 35 year high. Yeah, amazing. There's a and there's a lot of stuff in the pipeline. There's a lot of projects sitting in the pipeline that are ready to go. So just to complete our discussion around not the non-residential commercial market, is there anything else I you want to call out that I was that I didn't tease out? Anything? Any other uh, observations you want to make there? 
No, I, I think okay. that that lab, that life science work, that laboratory, the 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 healthcare, the clinic, that's really we're looking Where at the action is that that we've seen in, in those two sectors. Very cool. Okay. Are you seeing any uh, hotels being built? Or? Uh, it, it had a good year last year. It's down this year. We think it's going to continue to be down. What's interesting, though, is, again, if you look at the pipeline, I think there's a floor on activity. When you look at the kind of projects that are sitting in the planning cycle and you look at it by value class, there's a lot of high-end and luxury properties that are nearing the end of the planning process about to break ground. I I I would say those are, I don't want to say recession proof or slowdown proof, but those projects are likely to go ahead regardless in 2023, you know, going back to the assumptions of no recession, you know, debt ceiling, whatnot. Um, So that provides a four for hotel activity. And if you look further down in the value chain to more of the mid-market, mid-market with food, there's a lot piling up in the early stages of planning that I think is really good news for 2024 once the economy is on much, much solider footing. Great. Well, let's uh, play the game, the stats game. Uh, everyone picks a statistic. Uh, the rest of the group tries to figure out what that is through clues, deductive reasoning, uh, and um uh, questions and the the best stat is one that's not so easy. We get it immediately. Uh, one that's not so hard, we never get it. And if it's apropos to the conversation at hand, all, all the better. And still tradition, Marissa, we're going to go with you first. Uh, what's your stat uh, this week? Twenty nine percent. Twenty in April. In April, twenty nine percent. Government statistic? No. Hmm. Did it come out this week? Yeah. Uh, is it related to what we're talking about here, the construction trades? Yes. Okay. Uh, I know the National Association of Home Builders came out with their uh, sentiment index, but that was good. That was like 50. Yeah. But, I, but I know you, you like to dig deep into the bowels of these reports. Is it in that report? No. Oh, uh okay uh chris richard any ideas 29 percent. it's related to real estate residential side of the market it is residential related yes is it a year over year figure no no is it banking related it's a share it's a share share of something okay uh hmm it and it, it's not, it's a, a report that came out this week, but not a government report. Yeah. Uh, I can't think of what that would be. Can you give us any other hints, Marissa? It, so it's I'm not like NAHB, any, but it's something NAR. along those lines. NAR. Oh, NAR. Is, it, is that the number? Home sales. Uh, is it the number, the share of metropolitan areas that did not experience price decline? No. no. Okay. Uh, oh, existing home sales came out, right? So 29% share. So what would the share be in there? Uh, that was tw- 29%, right? 29%? Yep, 29%. In the exist- it's in the existing home sales report. Yes. Yeah. 29% of home sales are in the South. I'm making that up. No. <laughs> Is it regional? No. No. I don't know. Guys, I think uh, she's got us. Yeah, that's. Yeah. Okay, we'll g- we give. We give what, up. Uh, yeah, we give up. I give up. 
It's the share of home sales made up by first-time home buyers. Oh, that's a good one. That's a really good one. Of course. And that is up a tick from the previous month. It was 28% in March, and it was 28% in April of 2022. But that is very close to an all-time low since NAR has been tracking the series. So the Mm. all-time low was in November. It fell to 26%. So just going to this affordability, what we were talking about, about the single family market and uh, the demographics, the the corollary statistic is the age of the first time home buyer has risen to 36. It was 33 like two years ago. So as affordability erodes, it's just more and more difficult to get first time buyers into the market. Is that that, that 36-year-old... is that NAR data as well? The realtor data as well? Does it come from the realtor report or is that some it's other? The, it's from realtors. Yeah. It is. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That is interesting. Uh, yeah. It makes, makes a lot of sense. Uh, that's good. So we should have, we, we should have gotten that. Chris should have gotten that. But that was, that was good. That was a very good one. Chris, you want to go next? Sure. 33%. Uh, statistic that came out this week. Yes. Housing Government related? St- it is housing related. It is um, a statistic I constructed, though. Um, From government data? Yes. Uh, so ex- I'll hint is existing home sales is part is an input into the calculation. It, in in what was this number again? 30, 33%. In the data from the existing home sales is part of this, this calculation, 33%. Um. Well, I mean, uh, that's a little misleading. The thirty-three okay. percent. It's um. Is it? Is it? Is it? It's a share of. Them? Let me make it easier. It's a okay. share of listings. What does this refer to? Oh, uh, high end or uh, no? Is it, no foreign buyers. No investors. Cash no. buyers. No cash buyers. No. Might be that. That's pretty close. I'm, I think as well. But yeah, it's a uh, new construction. Oh. The share of uh, active listings that are for new home okay. construction, okay, three percent. That's a record high. That right? that's interesting. Really? Wow! Yeah. And it just points to the lack of inventory of existing homes right. out there. So hmm. people are having to look elsewhere, and if they can afford it, they're they're going with a new home. That is interesting. I thought so. Yeah, yeah, right. What's it typically? What's the percent typically? Do you know? Oh, what was uh twenty percent? Oh, twenty percent. Twenty percent was what it was at pre-pandemic, and that was high uh, at the time. That's uh-huh. so it's right. Uh, yeah, just go. Why that brings up a really good question, and I don't want to go too deep down this rabbit hole. But what what do you ascribe the low inventory to? Why is there such uh, oh the lock-in effect? The lock-in effect. Yeah, that's number it's one. A, Existing homeowners locked in a record low interest rate. If they sell, they have to face a, a much higher rate. It just doesn't just doesn't work for them. Of course, it was low before the pandemic too, right? Before interest rates um, rose, right? I mean, inventories were, have been lean for quite some time. Yeah, yeah, but they're especially lean. No, they're especially <laughs> lean now. It's even Absolutely. more of a, a yeah. disincentive uh, right. to sell. Right. So they, they yeah. hate their home and like their mortgage. That's yeah, right. He, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's the way I think <laughs> right. about it. Okay. So you renovate. Right. 
Marissa knows all about that. Yep. And Chris. Yeah. Yes. Oh, really? I didn't know Chris was running. We just had a therapeutic session last week about our respective Marissa. renovations going on forever. We, we can speak to those uh, construction workers focusing on the larger projects <laughs> and uh, neglecting uh, yeah. smaller it's renovations. Definitely a problem. <clears throat> okay, Richard, you're up. Sure. All right. This, this, I have a long list here, but I'll, I'll just pick the one off the top. 1985. Okay. So something happened in 19, 1985 was the year that multifamily construction peaked. Nope. Right concept, different, different sector. Oh, okay. Yeah. What oh, peaked multifamily? Yeah, Marissa got it. Office peak. I think I think multifamily peaked in 1985. Don't you it, think? It probably. That's not my stat, but that. That's, yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's a half. Check half it time. out. <laughs> yeah, check it out. <laughs> yeah. So 1985 was the peak year for new office construction, and I. What I think is most interesting about that is each subsequent cyclical peak. Yeah. Has been lower. And lower, and lower, and lower, and 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 where I get stuck a lot, certainly talking to clients and folks in the industry, is that these construction verticals, whether they're single fam, multifam, education, that they're static, and it's important to remember that these are evolving markets, right? And that the the pandemic, at least in terms of office, it, it kind of spinal tapped it, right? It turned that evolution up to eleven. Yeah. But that the, the that change or that that lack of or declining demand for office space has been going on for decades. It yeah, just, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess nineteen eighty five. That's also like uh, peak of. Uh, labor force growth, right? Because you had yeah. the boomers entering in, you had female participation rising quickly. So you had a lot of folks kind of piling into the, and a lot of them more college educated, white collar, kind of piling into that market. And now we're on the flip side of all of that. Yeah. And I think there were some tax depreciation. Uh, that too. That's yeah. the apartments, yeah. right? Exactly. Right. 1985 yeah. was the peak of multifamily uh, starts. I'm just saying. <laughs> I am just saying. I'm just saying. Yep. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. That was a good one. That was a really good one. Uh, Okay. I think mine's hard. Sorry. Uh, But I'm, I, I am good at giving clues. Uh, And I have, I have two statistics, but I'll begin with the first one. 7%. Housing related. It is construction related broadly. Okay. And think macro, you know, think big picture. Think about where we started the conversation. The share of the economy. Yeah, share of the economy. It's construction put in place, the total value of construction put in place across the whole shoot and match, according to the Bureau, not according to Dodge. Although, does the the Bureau of Economic Analysis use Dodge data to construct its estimates? I believe it does, doesn't it? Yeah, so actually Census is is a client of ours. Census, I should say. Yeah, Census, yeah data as the basis for the put-in-place survey for non-residential. Right, exactly. So total construction put in place divided by nominal dollars, divided by GDP is 7%. And you've got data back, in this case, monthly data back, I think, 30-some years. Yeah. Guess what the average share is of GDP? 7% on the nose. Hmm. So it hasn't yeah. changed. 
It has, you know, it goes up and down and all around. It peaked, you know, during the housing boom before the financial crisis, and it but and it hit the bottom in the bust uh, during the housing crash after the crisis. But you know, we're exactly where, and it's been rock solid, stable, you know, for a couple of years. You know, just rock solid, stable, pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, oh, and I think your fifteen percent probably that in my mind makes sense if you consider all the so-called multipliers, right? Yeah. You know, all the ancillary businesses that are not construction, but are obviously driven off of the construction activity. And it feels like that would push it up to 14, 15%, at least in my mind's eye. Yeah. You know, we typically think of all the housing services. Yeah. Mortgage brokers, insurance, all that. There's a ton of stuff. stuff. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Here's the other one. Same. Think about it in, the, in this context. 5%. 5%. Same thing, big picture, macro. One was output, GDP. This is. It's not productivity, is well, it? it? It kind of, you're, in, Growth you're thinking along the wrong over the share, of an, that... share of employment? Or... Share of employment. Exactly. Oh, okay. Like, like okay. 5% of all non farm jobs are construction. And you know what the average is? And here we have data back to 1933 from the BLS. You know what, it did, what the average is? And go with five, five percent. The Athena, five percent. I mean, I find that amazing. I just yeah. find that amazing. The construction trades are like right in, right exactly where they you know typically are. A lot, obviously, a lot of churn, you know, up and down and all around. But uh, and uh, you know, a lot going on underneath the uh, the hood here. But at the end of the day, we're still kind of landing around. And then I look at that, I go, it's a, it's got to be a pretty productive sector, doesn't? It? If the output share is seven. And the employment share is five. I don't know. I'm, I'm it's pretty simplistic, but nonetheless. Anyway, um, okay, that was good. That was very informative. Yeah, very informative. Let's uh, let's uh, now uh, with the remainder of the time we've got, turn back to uh, a very important part of the construction trades that we, at least I, typically don't pay much attention to, but I think we need to is public construction, public infrastructure. So what's the state of affairs there? I mean, given the bipartisan infrastructure law that was passed, are things kicking in? Are we starting to see that money get out? Aggressively so, yeah. If, if you look at data that, that the White House releases, uh, I think they put it out every two to three months. They give an update of how much of the funds have been announced. Uh, 40% of all the street dollars have been announced, 43% of all the water. And we're starting to see that flow through into starts. We're looking at across the country, north, south, east to west, street, bridge, water, sewer construction is up double digits uh, far and away. Um, what's interesting, though, when you think back to that, at least to the nerd in me, if that that 40% and that 43% announced from the White House, there, there's a big difference between announced allocated and spent, right? So that's money right. that that announcement is just the initial dollars moving from Washington to Texas or, or wherever, then Texas takes it and spends it out to the local DOTs or the state DOTs. So there's a lot of money that hasn't been announced. There's a lot of money sitting in the allocation pile and we're starting to see the end of the pipeline, the starts increase. So really, really, I think a positive uh, outlook here, although I, 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 there, I, I would offer there's a bit of a downside potential here too, right? To all this activity, 
Um, and I hate saying this, but but if we think okay, about before you, before you go there, let's let's dwell yeah. on the positive for another okay, second. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just because uh, is, uh, this is something that's uh, very important to our forecast for the economy. Uh, given your sense of the uh, lags between, you know, uh, 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 the allocation and the actual implementation and the actual project beginning, when do you think the maximum impact of the infrastructure law will be to the economy? Uh, you know, in terms of the timeline, when should we expect that maximum impact? Yeah, well, we, when we started building these these assumptions into our model, we assumed twenty three and twenty four would be the best years in, in terms of growth okay. uh, for, for infrastructure. We're pushing that out or we'll, we'll start pushing that out, I think, to 24 and 25. We are noticing um, a little more of a delay between that allocation and spend. Mm. I think that has a lot to do with, with labor shortages. It has a lot to do with material prices that are still very mm. high. So state and local communities, I think, are, are, are not putting the brakes on it, but they're certainly slow walking projects just to see if they can see some improvements in materials or labor allocation. Got it. And I mentioned the bipartisan infrastructure law. I mean, that's obvious. That's yeah. money directly to public construction. Right. The Infl Inflation Reduction Act, which was predominantly around climate related investments, does that also play a role here too? Do you think We're, we are definitely seeing uh, in our utility sector? So utility scale wind and solar projects, part of Kicking the Inflation Reduction Act was the the extension of the production tax credit and the investment tax credit for for wind and solar. So that has spun up a lot of projects, not just in the pipeline, but as well as in the in the start. So absolutely, we're seeing that it, it's it's big gains there. Okay, so you think that the the kind of the uh, there will be wind in the sails here through twenty four, probably into twenty five. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And even okay. through twenty seven, I think levels are still high. It's just those yeah. dollars are starting to take. Yeah. Up. Yeah. yeah. They, they you start getting kind of negative numbers because the right. the level is starting to come back in. Exactly. But it's just positive kind of growth rates, you know, for the next year or two. You would expect very very positive. Very positive. High double okay. digit. High double digit. digit. Okay. High teens. High teens. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Okay. So what's the negative? Well, I, I as we've been looking at it and thinking about, and this goes for manufacturing and all the dollars that are flowing into the manufacturing sector, this is a competition for labor. And so the concern that we have is that smaller and medium-sized non-residential projects are going to get crowded out. They're not going to have access to workers or materials to get these projects done. So right. I think that's just an added downside. We've seen this before too, right? When when just prior to the pandemic, uh, where a lot of construction was in downtown urban cores, these big mega projects, it essentially squeezed out any small to medium-sized projects in the area because there's just not enough labor to go around. So I think that's a particular downside to whether it's the public side of the building market for schools and healthcare, or whether it's the private side of the building market I think there's an incredible, I hate to say the word risk, but there is a downside to all these dollars, all these public dollars fueling manufacturing and infrastructure. It's positive for the sector to be sure, but there is a downside there. Well, I guess it, you'll, if you're in the construction industry, you say, I'll, I'll take take it. I mean, That's, you know, I was, I was yeah. talking to a client about infrastructure and I got to that point in the conversation. I said, well, here's where it gets a little bit boring, right? Because yeah. everything is up. It's it's the rising tide lifts all boats. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, this is nothing about this is boring. This is, you know, the best news you've had all day. Yeah. Right. 
And I, I you know, I, I it, we are seeing wages in the construction trades rise rapidly, which goes to the construction costs and to your point about delays in construction projects. Uh, but presumably that should help alleviate, you know, some of the labor uh, issues, uh, you know, going forward. But it, you're right, it's just competition, you know, yeah. you know, against other parts of the economy. Um, okay, very good. Uh, you, I, one last thing, uh, I, I, and I, I'm, I don't, somehow I'm not, I don't want to end on a down note, but the debt limit, um, you know, obviously that's top of mind uh, as the president is negotiating with uh, Speaker McCarthy. Feels like we're getting kind of happy talk. So that today uh, was the last hour I looked. <laughs> that could change very quickly. Uh, but it feels like we're coming to a deal. But uh, and hopefully we do in the next week or two uh, without too much kind of drama and damage. Uh, but you, it sounds like you took our couple uh, breach scenarios and ran them through your models to gauge what kind of impact they would have if we actually did breach the debt limit. Do, do I have that right? You have it right. Yeah, we, we took okay. your, your short breach and your prolonged breach and ran them through our econometric models. And it, it was stark, to be honest. Mm. Uh, the, the short breach was fairly mild. I think I mentioned at the outset, we're looking at total construction up to in 2023. Uh, that short breach scenario would change that plus two to a minus three. Okay. So it, 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 yeah. as we ran scenarios through our system, very similar numerically in amplitude to, I think it's your S3 scenario mm-hmm. in terms of the impact on, not the macro side, but just the impact on construction starts, but that the prolonged breach was scary. That that plus two in baseline changes to a minus 14. Yeah. And when I, we look peak to trough, down 30%. Oh, really? Down 30? And when you go back to the Great Recession, peak to trough was down 40. Oh, and, oh wow. Okay. Over, so this would be over a shorter period of time. Right. Right. And of course, that doesn't account for the what will be in in either scenario higher interest rates going forward, right? Exactly because right. investors are going to demand a premium, yeah. thinking, "Well, you guys breached this time. What about next time? And the time after that, and demand a risk premium." Yeah, right. right. That's interesting. Very good. Hey, I want to end um, with a uh, kind of something we haven't done in a, in a few podcasts and talk about probabilities of recession. And Richard, I don't know if you've thought about this at all, but. Uh, uh, if you have, I'd like to get your opinion. But let me start with uh, Marissa. Can you just remind everyone what your probabilities of recession starting in 2023 uh, are and uh, in 2024, um, what they were and if they've changed at all? I'm still at about 50% for 2023. Okay. 2024, I'd up it to 55. Okay. And, and that's, that's not different than it's not materially different no yeah so your mood hasn't changed here not really despite no. all the whatever is going on okay chris do you, what, what is your what is your probabilities well uh, before i give them let me just announce to, because you said it the uh, headline across the wire now is that the republicans walked out of debt ceiling talks oh wow. the white house isn't being reasonable so so put okay, that in your go. calculus yeah here yeah. we go well uh, it was no. too good to be true right i mean <laughs> Uh, 45%, 65%. 45% this year, this 65 year, next in year. 2024. And, um, uh, that, that sounds the same like kind of sort of where you've been. Right. Yep. Okay. R- Richard, I know that it's putting you on the spot here, but do you think about things in these terms? Do you, do you have a sense of 
the probability of recession this year and again next year? Yeah, uh, we we certainly put thought into it. We look at all your scenarios uh, across the 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 the, the spectrum. I, I would say I, I pretty much agree with Marissa here. I think fifty, maybe a little bit less than fifty for this year. Fifty five, maybe a little bit higher than fifty five for twenty four. Okay, all right. Uh, and has that changed in any material way? Not yeah. recently. No. Not recently. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, I I think uh, I'm at. Now forty percent for twenty twenty three. That's lower. I was at forty five, uh, down to forty, and I'd say maybe fifty in twenty twenty four. You know, uh, I'd say on the south side of fifty for twenty twenty four. I'm feeling increasingly confident that we're going to make our way through uh, without an economic downturn. Inflation feels like it's coming in reasonably gracefully. It feels like the Fed is done tightening. Or if not, very, very close. Uh, and it feels this economy is just so resilient, no matter what's thrown at it. All the slings and arrows, Russian war, debt limit drama, a kind of an unprecedented increase in interest rates. We still keep chugging away. So I don't know. I'm feeling I'm feeling better about things uh, than I have. Even after Chris's statement. Yeah, but- despite Chris's headline. Well, yeah, I thought I could sway I, you. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> didn't you think all that happy talk was too good to be true? I mean, really, does that just doesn't sound right to me? That didn't. It they didn't have sound to right come to, to an agreement by what Sunday or something? Is that they can they can suspend? You know, push comes to shove, you just suspend. You yeah, know, they for, they could, but yeah. will they? I I think they I think the odds of that are high. If, I mean. It, if the alternatives I'm going to breach, I think the alternative would be because you know, they're negotiating. It's not like they're not negotiating. So I, I, I think they would do that. But um, I mean, I'm not if, if there's a breach, then 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 we're all wrong. Right. Because we were Very, all, yeah. all below 50 percent because it's going to be going in recession this year. It's just a question of. Yeah, but some of us are more wrong than others. Huh? I, gu- I guess so. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Uh, all right, fair enough. All right, but I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. That, that, you're not handy. You're not handicapping a, a breach here either, are you, no. Chris? No, no. Yeah, I think it's still part of the the game. It's still part of the game. I mean, at the end of the day, McCarthy's got to get some of these guys on the Republican side to vote for it. And if he gives in too early, they're going to say you didn't fight hard enough. I'm not voting for that, right? So, I, I, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Um, great. Anything else? Uh, we miss anything? That was a wonderful conversation. I feel like I've got a much better grip on what's going on in the construction part of the economy, which is a key part of the economy. I think, you know, because going back to my glass half full kind of perspective, you know, the fact that the construction trades are just simply hanging in there is like, whoa, that's amazing. Right. Because interest rates have risen dramatically. Yeah. It's the most interest rate sensitive sector of the economy and it's doing okay. Really? Okay. I mean, go figure. I mean, that that feels like another reason that I hate to say it, Chris. Just don't say it. Okay. I won't say it. He knows what I'm going to say. Okay. I won't say it. I won't say it. Anyway, I think we're going to call it a podcast. Hey, Richard, thanks so much. Really. You guys, I really appreciate the conversation. Really appreciated it. And uh, with that, we're going to call it a podcast. Take care, everyone. 